The seminar starts now. Welcome to The Seminar, a podcast from the Center for Cultural Analysis at Rutgers University. My name is Nicholas Glastonbury, and I'm broadcasting from New Brunswick, New Jersey. On today's episode, I talked to Nono Boy about the hidden history of Asian America in Americana music and about the insurgency of music against empire. Nono Boy is the musical brainchild of Julian Saperiti. The project emerged during his graduate studies, first at University of Wyoming and then during his PhD at Brown University. Nono Boy's first album, 1942, takes its name for the year that the U.S. government incarcerated 120,000 Japanese Americans in concentration camps across the American West. Since then, Nono Boy has released two more albums, 1975, named for the year of the fall of Saigon, and most recently, Empire Electric, released this September from Smithsonian Folkways. In the liner notes to the first album, 1942, band member Aaron Aoyama describes the project as, quote, an attempt at a methodological intervention in how we teach and think about history, to frame it as questions and stories, rather than as our dead past or, on the other end of the spectrum, our doomed future. Nono Boy's new album, Empire Electric, extends these questions across the Pacific, sounding a novel and disruptive history of Asian America. Before we get into the weeds with your music and the new album, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the name of the project, which comes from the novel by John Okada, published, uh, I think, in the 1950s. Could you talk a little bit about what inspires you about the novel, what the name Nono Boy signifies, what it refuses? Well, I think at this point in my sort of retreating from academic career and where you are, I bet you'll have a lot more like interesting thoughts about what I do than I actually have at this point in my life. Like these days, I'm more of um, going back to my musical self. And I think that's a lot less analysis and a lot more doing. Right. But obviously still happy to uh, put put on the scholar hat and uh, get into any weeds that that you think the music is is getting into or the stories or whatever pertaining to the the band name i mean it's so funny because obviously that's going to be the first question any press always asks and it is or at q a's after my concerts you know what does this this mean and there's a few different answers um 
one, yeah, it's just to trick people into reading a good book. And I know at this point there's been dozens, if not a few hundred people who have bought No No Boy and read it just because of the band name. And, and that's sick as a teacher, you know, like it's hard enough to get students to read what you put on the syllabus, let alone uh, a band name inspiring someone to uh, go to the bookstore and pick something up. And what I love about that novel is that so so for myself, um, the disembodied voice, whoever's listening to this is hearing, I'm an Asian American person and I'm half Vietnamese and half white. And I grew up in Tennessee in the 80s and 90s. So I, I really didn't have a very good sense of self um, relative to, I think, the the cultural awakening and um, identity affirming childhoods a lot of contemporary youths go through nowadays like in the same place that I grew up in Tennessee even if you're different or gay or whatever um, kind of marginalized community you, you might find yourself in from birth um, I think it's a lot easier to cope with that stuff for me it wasn't and there wasn't a lot of representation I mean which is kind of the the flag that Asian American studies has always waved uh, there certainly is now um, in your bookstores and in on Netflix and movie theaters and stuff like that. But when I was a kid, it was pretty stereotypical if it was there at all and kind of harmful. And so I read No No Boy when I first went to grad school because I got interested in Japanese American incarceration because I was in Wyoming uh, at University of Wyoming American Studies program. And there was a Japanese, what's colloquially, colloquially called a Japanese internment camp up at Heart Mountain near Yellowstone. And so I got really fascinated by this jazz band that formed there. And uh, I started doing this project on them and sort of researching, like, how does a jazz band form behind barbed wire? This I never learned about this crazy internment thing growing up in Tennessee. Didn't know there was 120,000 people locked up behind barbed wire. You know, it just really blew my mind to see all these black and white photos of musicians like me stuck behind barbed wire. And so I read all the literature, um, you know, the way grad students do attached to the historical event I was studying. And No No Boy was the one novel that really just uh, really had weight to me. And, and I think part of that is because of my identity, like being a, a, a guy, like a masculine man guy, um, which is not to be flip. It's just to say that a lot of literature, especially in the last 20 years, has skewed towards, uh, you know, people with MFAs um, uh, who are, you know, in Asian America, like it's largely a feminine voice that um, populates the bookstores, which is awesome. A lot of those wonderful novels and memoirs uh, have contributed to what I do and I love them and teach them. But there was this character who is kind of like this really almost like Holden Caulfieldy, like just a real upset, troubled young man. And I really related to that, having like worshipped at the altar of rock and roll in my youth and toured around and stuff like that. And, um, and it was nice to see that character. And, but in this really deeply divided historical time period of post-Japanese American incarceration. And so the novel's called No-No Boy because this guy Ichiro was an actual no-no boy. And that's a colloquial term for the people who answered negatively to a, a loyalty questionnaire that the American government um, gave to the incarcerated people in these camps. And there was a few thousand of them, like upwards of like almost 20,000 who answered no and no to questions. Will you serve in the army and will you forswear allegiance to the Japanese emperor for many different reasons? Right. And these people got ostracized from the Japanese American community up until the 2000s, basically. Like they were just persona non grata in so many of 
the situations. And, and when they return to places like Seattle, where the No No Boy novel takes place, Ichiro is just treated like shit by the Japanese American community. Oh, Ichiro, so entangled in your sheets on every page. I thought that's me. So for me, it was a great novel because one, it was one of the few places where I saw kind of a character like myself, sort of like this like toxic masculinity that I grew up with um, that I don't like condone or anything, but like it was very much my life as a boy. You know, that's the, that's a, the world I grew up in. And so I like seeing that, um, if only to learn from it and to teach it or to teach against it maybe. But then also this hidden history with it in a hidden history, these no-no boys, these draft resistors, uh, which is what Ichiro was. Um, and then how this is not a monolithic community. Like some of these people disdain people in their own community because of their politics. And as a Vietnamese person, that's something I, I really related to because we have a lot of political differences within our own community. So the idea of um, you know unflattening has been a huge part of my scholarship. And that's coming from this person, Yen Le Espiritu, who's a critical refugee scholar. The idea of unflattening the term immigrant or refugee, Okada does that wonderfully. One, by being perhaps the first great Asian-American novelist and having this gift of language, but also by choosing a character, this no-no boy, who not only didn't fit into American society so much that he was incarcerated unjustly, unconstitutionally during World War II, but didn't fit into Japanese American society. And it's kind of, again, going back to my childhood, he portrays this torn intuitedness, this cut in halfness that I really could never articulate, but I felt when I read that book. So all of that goes into this little band name. You know, at the end of the day, you know, five, six, seven years later, I'm quite tired of explaining that you know the way any band i'm sure you too is very tired of talking about their name um but it does have a, a couple layers of meaning but most importantly it's to trick people into reading a book which is at the end of the day the teacher in me yeah that's fascinating you know it, it feels like it has resonance with other works in asian american literature like the sympathizer which i know is on your uh, reading list on your website uh, where the main character is kind of refusing allegiance in sort of all directions, you know, refusing a, a kind of binary world order, but also just disidentifying from the given categories into which he's supposed to slot. Uh, and I, I feel like that's maybe a dynamic I see in in your music. Yeah, I mean, The Sympathizer is a, it's another bro Asian American book, like, that's like a guy who just, again, like very toxic and a community that I recognize and I relate to and, and, and learn from those characters because I can so closely identify with them and, and how I grew up and the things I had to unlearn becoming maybe a more productive member of, the, of society. And certainly once I got into like academic cultural studies circles, which is the farthest kinds of people and politics you could imagine from how I grew up in the South and, you know, as like a bro and stuff like that. So yeah, Sympathizer is another great one. Um, but yeah, so much of um, this project, you know, it's it, it comes from my bookshelves. And I think um, the songs come directly from the archives. And uh, sometimes I am turning 
stories from my peers or friends research into songs and um i figured maybe it was fitting you know to, to name it after a book title and uh, especially one like i said it's sort of a hidden history within it within a hidden history and one that prioritizes um an Asian American who feels out of place within his own Asian American community. Right. Yeah. I I think the hidden histories that you're tracing, you know, that these are sort of at the origin of No No Boy as a musical project, uh, across the albums you've released, uh, it seems that what you're doing is kind of following an undercurrent of Asian Americanness that is effaced or erased in American history, but also in the genre of Americana. So I'm wondering if you could talk about Americana as a genre, like, do you feel settled in that genre or does it feel sort of like a misnomer for what you think you're doing? Oh, it's certainly not a misnomer. I mean, I, I record for Smithsonian Folkways, which is all dead Americana inventors, you know, like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and Leadbelly and stuff. So it's definitely, if you're going to use a genre, I think it's right. And also where I'm from, you know, from Nashville, Tennessee, my dad, I'd worked for Warner Brothers Records. I grew up literally hanging out with country music stars and going to see all the session players around town and playing music and dancing at barn dances, like real Americana shit. Like, um, for me, I didn't really have that choice. It's just how I, what I was born into. So I, any twang that you might hear in my voice or, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, in my songs like that, that, that comes pretty, I can't help that. I mean, maybe I wish I could, honestly, but. I can't. And so, yeah, I guess Americana is like very um, not authentic to me. Try to get away from those words, right, as a scholar. But um, it was pretty acculturated from day one, you know. And uh, but I, yeah, I have again, like as I've gotten more into creating music based off my research, my primary sources, I've gotten less interested in analyzing my own work um, because that just feels uh i don't know weird but i think when i've heard other people talk about my work as like an intervention in americana <laughs> which is so silly to quote people talking about my stuff uh i dig it i guess you know like because at the end of the day what it is is like it's not using that music to make space for myself it's it's playing the music that i grew up with and finally, like having that be less odd or weird. Um, like when I do go to Nashville, I do see other Asian kids or Asian adults now who play music around town. And I never saw that growing up, you know, but uh, yeah, Americana is just I come by it pretty naturally when I sit down. A lot of times when I write, I'm just playing the same three chords on guitar, the same pickups and hammer ons and uh, yeah, the same style. It's just kind of like what I do and. That's how I sing, and that's the music I relate to, or one of the music. So, yeah, that's that's Americana to me. Yeah, you know, that makes me think about uh, your song Nitro 66 Cannonball Blues, right? Which is sort of Americana's Americana. It's yeah. like old-time music, you know, but then with a, with a twist. Mm-hmm.
And I think that that's sort of like, you know, maybe intervention isn't the right word. Maybe remix is a better word, but it does feel like um, it's, you know, it's striking because it's tapping into something that's sort of already there in Americana, right? And, and unlocking that to be heard. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's the... So that song in particular, you're just talking about like, it's three-part harmony. It's very much like a Southern Americana type uh, song. It's based off Cannonball Blues, an old song the Carter family picked up. Uh, I, that's the version I, I sing anyways. Um, but I just changed around the lyrics to talk about like this very old story of these Chinese miners in California who were doing this heinous, like exploitative labor um, building the railroads. Um, and there was this one pass in particular, all granite uh, in the Sierras, that people were like being lowered down in buckets and sticking newly invented nitroglycerin into the rock side. Then they hopefully would be pulled up before they got blown up. And it's just like movie stuff, um, very dramatic. And just these these poor folks, like a thousand of them died during the process of it. And, you know, you, you maybe gloss over that, but I love what you said. I don't know if it's a remix of Americana, but it's it's like what I do as an archivist like you maybe search the let's say you're searching old newspapers and, and if it's cataloged well god bless those archivists and librarians and you can maybe do like a um, a search by the titles of the different articles in the paper but if you actually read through the whole paper you find crazy shit um, and a lot of times you find story that's where you find stories of these marginalized people um, or, or people who aren't in the you know uh, capital H history books that we learned about when we were kids. And and I think that's, as an ethnomusicologist or a sound studies person or, some, or a musician, I think that's what has become interesting to me is like, oh, like the tom-tom on like those heavy metal drum kits I used to play when I was a kid at Guitar Center. Those are from like Chinese tom-toms. That's what they were called when they were first attached to the invention of the drum set, like in the early part of the 20th century. Okay, that's been here. Oh, the pedal steel guitar that I loved listening to down at the station in, uh, in Nashville. So country club, uh, always one of my favorite instruments cause it never quite settles on a note always resonated to me. That comes from a Hawaiian instrument, like a Hawaiian invention, the steel guitar, which actually was the first electrified guitar. Um, so these inventions have been trans-Pacific the same way the banjo has been, you know, transatlantic, uh, for all this time. So, employing those kinds of things but then on that track in particular uh accompanying it with um some chinese instruments or samples of chinese instruments like the guzhang uh and other stuff um that kind of like i like tricking people and it's like is that a banjo is that a mandolin is that a steel guitar i can't really tell because we're playing in this like tonal vernacular of americana music but it's like oh that's actually like a a quote-unquote weird Chinese instrument or something, you know? Um, and then obviously, like, kind of putting that pastiche together, um, this, um, in my mind, fictional, like, Chinese old-time band. <laughs> like, um, it's a good setting for the subject matter, like, talking about this, uh, again, hidden history that, you know, you only barely scratch the surface of. You mentioned the Chinese miners, but you don't know the tragedy and the heroism of their story. So, yeah. And that quality of pastiche that you're creating, you know, there are so many layers and strata to it, right? And and again, on that same EP that you did with Nitro 66 Cannonball Blues, you also have the mariachi version of your song, The Best Goddamn Band in Wyoming. 
I read a little bit about how that came about, but I'm wondering if you could speak about maybe that song and the George Igawa Orchestra and how that song in particular became remixed as a mariachi song as well. Yeah, so the origins of that song, that's my my uh, grad school time in Wyoming when I was doing that master's. Uh, like, uh, like I said, I, I got real into the story of this concentration camp up in Wyoming and it's like, wow, how could there have been 14,000 folks, 14,000 Asian American folks coming through here? And like even people who grew up in the town next door sometimes don't learn about it. As I was teaching them, like when they came to college at the university uh, in Laramie. And that, uh, that band I owe so much to um, because I had gone to Berkeley College of Music and took a bunch of jazz history courses. And never once did I learn about any Asian or Asian American pop musicians or jazz musicians um they've always been there i mean like americans you know conquer the the philippines or annex it from from uh spain uh before the 20th century and 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 then use it as like this base of military operations for for many things as they do the pacific islands and so those soldiers are bringing music over and the filipinos have this knack for um picking up that music um and then they spread it all over uh asia so so they're playing american roots jazz music for since the early 1900s right and so there has been this um strong lineage of whether it's jazz music or folk music or country music being blended and localized with the imperialized folks over in asia in the 20th century but i never learned about it right and and i never really i knew maybe karen O oh from the yeah yeah yeahs a great indie rock band was part korean but I never knew like Eddie Van Halen was like part Indonesian or Kirk Hammett was Filipino from Metallica, like all these like huge people, like it was never celebrated, you know, again, like when I was a kid, it was very different. So the Georgia Gawa Orchestra, having taken all these jazz history courses and never learning about any of these folks really blew my hair back when I saw a picture of them, like 16 piece jazz band and suits, um, all Asian American faces, all living in Wyoming. That alone was like, feeling like I discovered some kind of lineage. Like I, I myself was leading a ragtag group of jazz musicians from the university around the state playing cowboy bars, stuff they wouldn't let them play in the, in the conservatory. And, and so here's this other guy leading this jazz band, but the contexts were so dramatic and so cinematic, right? You, you, you start on that band and, you know, if you're a musician, you know very well what a band practice feels like. So you, you just can kind of get into those histories a little easier when it comes to those musicians. And I think about, yeah, bringing in a new tune and, and, and giving out the charts and trying to get these kids to, to play and, and tighten up their rhythm. But then when you zoom out, it becomes more and more unrelatable, right? You zoom out from that barrack where they practice in, in this like wintry, cold Wyoming weather. Okay, kind of relatable still, but then you get out to searchlights scanning this makeshift city, not relatable at all, then barbed wire. And the fact that they would gig and they would ride on the bus. Okay, that's something I can relate to. But then they'd have to go back to their concentration camp. So it was both this, like, because of the relatability of the actual practice of playing music to to these musicians, I could then at least start to maybe empathize or or be bewildered even more so, I don't know, by, by their situation. And so I had to tell this story. And so I, I wanted to interview anyone who was left and luckily there were two people from that band that were still alive this um this guy named yone 
in San Francisco and I got to call him a bunch, but I never got to meet him because he passed away, unfortunately, which is sort of what happens when you research, you know, uh, stuff that happened a long time ago. But he was a trumpet player in that band and he was just such a wonderful bullshitter and just like this great old guy, like San Francisco musician type guy. And so we had these great conversations and he told me about the band. And, um, and then there was this woman named Joy who became like like a family member to me, really. Um, you know, we, we we talked on the phone. She lived out in Hawaii. She was told me she was still singing some of those old camp songs that she sang with the Georgia Gawa band for her uh, for her old folks home. And she was so sweet. And I, I met her daughter in San Francisco and her daughter became like an auntie to me, kind of helped me with my research going around Japantown. And Joy would then just like start emailing or calling when she saw like there was bad weather, like coming wherever I lived, you know, the way that old folks do. And eventually we got to like, I got to go out and like play music with her and like actually play some of these songs that the Igawa band played. Um, you know, and I spent so much time up there in Wyoming. So I really knew this, this band um, as well as I've known any band, whether that's like as a fan or, or as someone who knows the band members or as a fellow jazz musician, whatever. So I wanted to write a very autobiographical story of the band forming and Georgie Gawa putting this band together and, and sort of like bringing light to a very dark place through this music. They practice daily, kick on the weekend, stirring up those dusty mess halls. Teenage bodies unchained from their parents, and them old folks, they really lost it all. The only swing band left in Wyoming that got him out. And, and I did, and, and that song was wonderful. And, you know, the reason I turned my project, my scholarly work, into songs was because I knew it would reach more people. Um, one, I don't think anyone is particularly good at academic prose writing. I think it's a really terrible form. I suffer through it because I love the content, but it's, it's deeply unreadable, especially our dissertations in our first books because um, it's so master pleasing and jargony and citation filled and we're all imposters who are scared of not seeming like the smart kid um, blah 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 so I was like well I'm too old for this I, I went to grad school later in life I already had a career as a musician let me just try to write songs let me find an advisor who will let me do this and, and I did and I was very lucky because the way that remix or the the mariachi version uh, La Banda Mashingon in Wyoming came about is because another scholar an ethnomusicologist named Jesse um, who lives in um, L.A. Or, or Pomona, teaches at Cal Poly Pomona. She just like uh, heard the song um, when it came out on the Folkways album 1975 and then just emailed me like like a fan, <laughs> like a fan email, as she would say, and asking if she could get the lyrics and the chords to it because she's a mariachi teacher and she would love to um, play this song mariachi style with her students to sort of teach um uh i guess like a cross-cultural overlapping overlapping histories through 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 music right so so sort of like using mariachi and expanding the repertoire about different cultural stories um because she she heard it as like just this old kind of mexican country song style where you just like have a bunch of lyrics and you tell this like story of you know heroes or bandits or whatever um so that was completely her idea and um Jesse brought me down to Pomona. And in this case, we actually got to perform with the school's mariachi ensemble and record the tune and make a little video. And we got to go to the site um, 
because this was in Pomona, California, where the Georgie Gallo Orchestra first formed, which was in a fairgrounds where they were all incarcerated in early 1942. And George pulled together this band before they were sent off to Wyoming. And that was miraculous because it was really the sort of um, uh, like the apotheosis of, of my whole project, like the like this is all coming together. Like we're, we're ascending. This is like, this is actually like a cool thing that I've done because one, that song, obviously um, it, it proved through, through Jesse's interaction with it as like a bona fide PhD that this was um, legible to other scholars, which is something I was warned about like very harshly <laughs> at Brown. Like make sure if you're going to write songs, I don't know if this will be legible to other scholars. It's like, dude, our, what we write isn't legible to other scholars. Like songs are a lot easier to understand. Uh, so it proved that like, definitively right that jesse was doing real academic work both pedagogically and as a thinker through the song that i had told this history through and then also the public outreach of it right we're, we're able to have this conversation and this collaboration um jesse's mexican-american i'm vietnamese american i'm talking about this japanese-american jazz band she plays mariachi what's the overlap well we we, we found it because at that same fairgrounds where the Japanese Americans were incarcerated in 1942 during the pandemic, it was used as a holding facility for migrant children awaiting to be reunited in the United States with family members. And she went in like the Georgie Gao orchestra and brought light to a very just kind of like bummer situation by playing mariachi music for the kids um, who were waiting there. So she was like an inheritor of this space's uh, great musical lineage of, of, of providing that sonic relief in such hard times. And on top of that, right, besides finding these cross-cultural connections, proving the legibility of using art and music and film or whatever as, as scholarly conduits, there was this third layer of taking faculty from the university and also taking city council members um, to this local space where they had no idea of this history. Right. And be able to perform this song for them on the same spot where the Agawa Orchestra first played the talent show and tell them the history and then have Jesse talk about her experiences doing the same thing 70 plus years later. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing, and, and it's all owed to uh, to Jesse Viejo um, because. It was just her reaching out, uh, similar to, to how you reached out because you had heard my music as a listener, not necessarily as a scholar, but then having those songs trigger something because of all those layers, those historical layers and scholarly layers that are, if you're, if you're listening for them, they're there and I think they can do something. So that's a very long-winded explanation of a song, which to be fair, has had an extremely long journey from my days of like a rock climbing bum master's student uh, going off to historical sites in Wyoming to to, to now being post PhD, um, well, music bum again, I guess. So. <laughs>
best goddamn band in Wyoming. The best goddamn band in Wyoming. Yeah, I think it's just like a really, you know, catchy song. It's been stuck in my head for 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 weeks now. I also wanted to ask about your movement away from the United States as the site of these stories and into a kind of more trans-Pacific space or into East and Southeast Asia. I know you mentioned in the liner notes to the new album that making this music brought you deeper into Asia than your previous work did. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that journey where you think it's taking you from, from, from here. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily moving from the United States. It's moving from Wyoming. It's moving from the stories I picked up there, one about that camp at Heart Mountain, other stories about like Chinese miners being massacred, just really, really depressing grad school stuff. Um, and then sort of expanding to other parts of the United States, you know, the other incarceration camps, like the ones down in Arkansas, neighboring the state where I'm from, which I never learned about, you know, or the Southern Chinese history or the Chinese Cuban migration coming up to work the sugarcane fields once the slaves were freed you know, that kind of stuff. And then visiting California and the West Coast more in New York and getting to know those um, historical ethnic enclaves. And then also picking up these stories uh, around the country, right? And then down at the Mexico border and finding solidarity and community with folks like my family who are refugees today. But the project of going across um, the ocean, part of that is because I became very interested in another band a couple other bands, these Vietnamese rock bands that formed during the war, uh, taking the the music of their conquerors or their occupiers and localizing it, this acid rock, Jimi Hendrix, Doors stuff, and making some sick, sick music during that time period of late 60s, early 70s. Finding those bands, finding people who are in those bands, talking to them, and becoming really interested in you know, the musical shadow or the musical undercurrent of empire when it comes in or, or, or culture um, and how those things mix and get localized and provide agency or, or, or maybe not, depending on how people use them. So again, it was just all through, I can't study history or culture if it's not through bands. I'm just not smart enough to not make that point to point comparison, right? I have to, I have to know how people live who who live in this weird way that I live, which is to say a touring musician, um, a composer, a dancer. That's the only way I function in life well um, so far. And so once I found those overseas bands, you know, or, or heard about these Filipino cruise ship bands that were taking music all across the Pacific, American music all across the Pacific and changing it up and stuff, I was really into that. And so I just sort of naturally followed the music. And I think when you do that right historically when you aren't bound by the the borders of nation uh or even like diaspora of a community but you're you're bound by the process the art uh whatever it is in this case for me playing music you're able to jump around a lot more and find commonalities because you know um when you're really in it on one level as a musician uh, the identifiers of, of race, gender, sexuality, while they're paramount, especially in this era of cultural studies, they, they become less to the actual practitioner. So that's kind of how I got kind of all to all these different countries, whether it's thinking about, um, you know, uh, the Dutch in Indonesia and all the anthropologists who kind of emptied out all those stories and came in. Watching Indonesia is sort of like watching a snake shooting skins. Almost totally 
or my own family and my mom's friends in Saigon who were playing rock and roll during the war. I was pro-communist mm -hmm. and extremely pro-American because I really love rock and roll. Um, you know, or just like all these different kind of recombinations and evolutions and waves of empire and the culture that they brought, the languages they stripped, the food that they created, the war that they wrought. Um, yeah, it was because I followed the music. It was, it was, it was not so prescriptive as, um, as the normal grad studies, I guess, you know, where we get our book list of like a certain area. For me, mine was kind of wild and all over the place because it was like, it was music first, you know, generally speaking, America's in the Pacific and Asia, but that's a, it's like an irresponsibly huge swath for a grad student to be looking at. But it was like this, these little, these little nodes, right? Maybe it was a little Deleuze Guitari rhizomatic thing, but like it was, um, yeah, just following the sounds that were cool and, and the stories of people that I met and they connected because of the music, not necessarily because of these things that are less of an identifier to me, like race or nation. Yeah, I really like the, you know, following the music story that you're telling here, this kind of undercurrent of empire, as you called it. And I think that's such a useful way of formulating it. Sort of relatedly, uh, I'm wondering if you could talk about field recording and using found audio and other sort of, you know, maybe let's say non-musical or non-studio sounds how those might have factored into the way that you follow the music or how they might be something of a glue holding, you know, these disparate pieces of a trans-Pacific Asian Americana together. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like there's some some heady, heady, heady ideas of like cultural and intellectual cartography or artistic cartography that comes into play with um, this work. Like I always think of the map when I'm sequencing my albums and like in my head, I know on a map where the, the, the tack pins are of each of these songs. And it's really interesting to me if you connect all of those. And so place, like I said, placemaking is at the heart of this project for myself or holding place up to, to a, a more honest history, I suppose. Like going into my childhood in Nashville and kind of reexamining all the like uh, people doing Tai Chi in the park or when the first sushi restaurant opened and stuff or the Polynesian joint on White Bridge Road and being like, okay, there was these little dots of Asian-ness and, and how did they get here and how do I figure into that? Um, and so place has always been hugely important. So this project happened, you know, in waves. I first started writing the songs after I had spent years collecting oral histories and doing archival work. And then when it came time to start recording, particularly on the second album, at the end of my PhD, I had kind of like loosened the chains of um, being on campus. And that was so freeing to the ultimate scholarly process of going out to these places where I was writing about an old internment camp, for instance, and going to a barrack where this band would have rehearsed and capturing the the impulse response of that room and making a reverb out of it that I could then bring back into my recordings like so I could play in the same room as that band and, and then I would knock on the doors and and the glass windows and then I would turn those into drum kits or I would go to the museum and find luggage that was actually carried to those camps and make those into bass drums or uh, whatever and I would sample old instruments or that kind of stuff so I started being really interested in having 
just to please myself in the studio when I was singing the recordings of these songs to have rhythms made up of the places themselves. And that kind of really just felt full circle. But it's really for myself to sort of embody this history, to, to, to do this kind of performance ethnography. And so field recordings played a huge role in, in, in building the soundscapes of these. And then on the newest album, Empire Electric, it became even more important to to take ambient recordings of these places whether it's like a song about a an early settler in oregon and, and capturing like the bird sounds that they themselves would have heard as they were ma- like running a sawmill in the forest outside town Me. And so like it becomes more and more of a project that incorporates a lot of those sound studies techniques that I learned. And I've always loved field recording. I, my dad, one of my dad's best drinking buddy friends was this guy named John Lomax III. And his family's a very famous field recording family. So I heard all these things that no one had heard, all these recordings and these stories and got really into, you know, like people who do the Folkways label that I'm on, like that kind of old school song hunting. Um, it's very colonial and anthropological. So um, I've always been interested in that stuff. And and I think it, I don't know, again, like I don't have any analysis of my own music. That, that would be, I'd be happy to hear yours. But um, I do think methodologically, for the musician anyways, turning field recordings into samples, which then I could then, which I could then sequence through a, a synthesizer and make drum kits and beats out of, and then singing my songs about the histories from which those samples were sourced themselves. That was a really cool methodological thing. And uh, at least in my heart, when I hear those, it's like, wow, that sounds like a very realized recording, you know? Wow. Yeah. That's a, a really amazing methodological intervention. You know, I know that in sound studies, uh, there's, uh, especially when you're dealing with historical materials, there's almost always this hand wringing of like, well, you know, the recordings didn't survive, right? This is something that I face in my own work. And I know a lot of other scholars and sound studies do as well, that, you know, sort of what do we do when we can't hear the past? And in your case, for instance, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's recordings of the Georgie Gawa Orchestra. Nope. Um, and, and right. And so, so, you know, I think that's a moment when scholars sort of resort to hand wringing, you know, like, how do we tell this history? How do we explicate the experiences of this orchestra? How do we hear them? How do we listen in to them without the sound there to listen to? And it seems to me like what you're doing with this methodological intervention is precisely the work that scholars in their written scholarship can't quite do in, in making those histories resonate again when you don't have the, you know, quote unquote, primary source materials to listen to. Uh, you have these places, these sites, these spaces where music's happened in the past and, and letting them reverberate anew with your music uh, feels very much like a good way of uh, retelling yeah, those histories. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard and read that hand-wringing you mentioned. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm definitely taking more liberties because I'm not following so closely the field guide of of um you know the the ethnographer the the ethical ethnographer the the 
um, ethical historian and stuff because I do, I am an artist more than a scholar at this point. And, and scholarship is like the inspiration, but you got to let yourself off the chain if you're going to be a creator of music and a composer and stuff. And so you got to have a little bit more play. You have to have a little bit more, um, less allegiance to any kind of, um, uh, you know, guidebook, methodological guidebook or whatever. So I think some cool things come out. And I think ultimately, like we talked about with, with, um, Jesse's uh, picking up the Georgie Gawa song or whatever it does for you and some of my other colleagues who have picked this stuff up. It obviously has something to offer to our community because even more so than what I've done, which is more narrative like song driven. And I think the field recordings are a nice um, thing to buoy those stories with. There are ways, let's take the Agawa band, for instance, to really make an experience that um, brings that to life, right? We don't have recordings of them, but I have gone through every single camp newspaper and talked to the people who are still alive, and I have their repertoire, right? And I know which um, versions of the songs that Igawa would take the stock music, stock sheet music they would order to camp, and then rearrange based on um a tommy dorsey record or something like that right so we we can actually have the the notes to the best of our ability played and then it would be tempting to do this like with uh maybe a college orchestra or something like that but you really want like half of that orchestra to be like high schoolers and then you want like three virtuosos that would be really the composition of talent within the band and so it's going to be a little shaky, a little off, depending on how good of a teacher George was, because he was just using whatever people were there. You're going to want to get the period instruments, which you can very well source old 1940s horns and stuff like that. Um, and then you're going to want to, um, whether you do it in a studio or whether you do it in an actual structure, um, like they have rebuilt around the country in s certain spaces, you want to capture the acoustics of this band because it sounds very different um in that space and like a concert hall in any other in any other place it's very wooden sometimes if it's a mess hall it doesn't sound that great to be honest with you um and then you also want a population of dancers because they were never giving a concert performance so you want to hear the the um details such as like the the crinkling of like um streamer paper you know uh that someone might tear off the wall during one of these dances or you want to hear the swish of shoes on a wood or concrete floor um, over cream of wheat, which is what they would sprinkle down so they could slide and they could jitterbug uh, more efficiently, right? All of these sounds go together or people like, um, so there are ways of recreating. If you really pay attention to the sound in the literature or the archives that are available. So all of this is done for me, you know, this was this was the actual written part of my dissertation, like really prioritizing the sound going through all the camp newspapers that were published. Right. Just and, and, and understanding like uh, the acoustics of the room and then going and making field recordings of those barrack spaces to the best of my ability and understanding the reflection points and how how this ensemble would have sounded, the, the volume of it, how how the shitty PAs they sang through would have always been drowned out. Right. Or they would have been super overdriven. Um and uh, how those those ribbon mics, those old RCA mics would have like come through those PAs. So I think it's just like combining the historian with like the music engineer, the live sound guy, which I happen to like be both. And I don't know how many of us are there, probably more in sound studies than any other place. 
And so I think there is a way to do it if you have like a budget to like do really good historical recreations on record of these things. Um, but I think so much of it comes from a method that is reading sound from the archive and then knowing how to replicate that both through repertoire, talent of musicians, talent level of musicians and the gear that they use in the spaces they played in. So that's, that's the nerdiest I'm going to get, but I felt like if there was any place to do it, this might be a place where it's appreciated. So I could keep talking to you for, for so much longer, just, you know, getting really into granular details about each of the songs on the new album. Um, but uh, maybe we'll save some of the magic for the listeners, you know, and, and, and maybe we can end with one last question. Uh, I sent you this quote, but you know, I'm, I'm really interested in the question of empire, right? And the relationship between empire and sound or empire and music. And we've touched on this a little bit already, but there's been a, a fair amount of work in that field. And there's a, in particular, a volume called Audible Empire. Um, in the introduction, the editors, Ronaldo Rodano and Teimola Olanian, write that what is audible about empire is not only the audibility of dominance, it is not simply the pernicious vibrations of rapacious capitalists or the sounds of bad men. So I hear echoes of this quote sort of in your music, and I'm wondering if you could respond to this claim. You know, the, there are these sort of dominant registers or major keys maybe of empire that we hear in most stories about music and empire, music and globalization. But what are the other registers of empire that you think uh, can be heard in your music? I mean, there's some very specific, there's, you know, some very specific ones. The first song of 1975, a song called Saint Denis, um, about my grandmother. And my mom is featured speaking in English, French, and Vietnamese. Um, and that's a reference to how her and her mother and my mom's sister would speak in this sort of like French Vietnamese Creole mashup language. Um, and to me, that's what I think of when I think of empire. Um, I mean, other audible sounds are people saying yum while eating like a banh mi sandwich, you know, which is the French empire mixed with uh, Vietnamese pork, um, you know, or yeah, like the CBC band, my favorite, um, my favorite of the Vietnamese rock and roll bands uh, singing in Vietnamese over this incredible uh, acid rock, uh, which is coming from the West coast of America, but also, you know, employing uh, bongos and in, in Latin percussion, a la Santana in that scene um, while playing these great electric organs and the shit hot guitar player, just wailing, uh, you know, Hendrix style uh, to me, that's like the sound of empire. Um and those are all very positive things. Like I think French is one of the most beautiful languages. I think Vietnamese is too, or the incredible guitar playing in the CBC band. I think when I first got into grad school, having been so deeply ignorant as one, a boy who came from the American South in the nineties into a musician, which is not necessarily the, the headiest space to be in, like an indie rock musician. I was kind of overwhelmed when I was learning about like all this horrible history of America and the world. So I got real negative and the project started from a real negative place. But to me now, it's just, I try to write as honestly as possible. And so there's a lot more, um, uh, not vagueness, but 
like a, a more opaque version of things, or at least a, a, a multi-layered version of things, right? And some of those layers are poison, and some of those layers are whipped cream. And to me, that's what empire is. Um, you know, empire is a double-edged sword. It's 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 like uh, it's both good and bad, and it's not an equal edge. You know, my family has experienced that 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 awful edge. Like that's the reason why we're here. That's the reason why my mom had to leave Vietnam is because she saw family members murdered in front of her. There were bombs going off as a child when she was living. It's not dissimilar. You know, from what some folks are unfortunately experiencing in Europe in the Middle East right now, like these childhoods interrupted and dreams taken away and family members literally blown up in front of children. Horrible stuff. I know that stuff. You know, I know that bad edge. But I'm interested in despite that, right? Despite maybe being put in a refugee camp, um, despite being stuck at the Mexican border for months on end, just waiting around to wait around, you know. I'm interested in the little kids who dress up like superheroes and have a great fucking day in that situation. You know, I'm interested in the kids playing soccer. I'm interested in the people playing music. Those are all beautiful examples because I, again, it goes back to that unflattening of the refugee of, um, of the colonized subject. And so I began to try to like lean into those, those moments where I heard empire, when I heard um, the CBC band performing these incredible songs when i heard the georgie gawa orchestra playing this deeply american swing music um but because of their otherness and because they were two empires fighting being locked in prison camps when you know i ate that banh mi sandwich or when i heard the um french that my mother speaks not as like the language of the oppressor but a beautiful language that i truly love and is very complicated for the reason why i i hear it i think that's a lot more helpful because obviously it's a dirge. It's it's a depressing fucking dirge that's that's atonal and, and just like full of shrapnel and napalm and um you know deletion of language and, and culture. But you know, I, I try to find the the more beautiful notes because at the end of the day, when you unblack and white it, when you see that most of it's gray, um, when you've done the deep work of understanding the history and the hard histories. I feel like it then lets you float a little bit more um, and understand that these are individual human stories. And even an empire is just a collection of in individuals and maybe a state apparatus, sure. But like individuals making decisions and having complicated relationships on the ground. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's that's what I hear now. That was No No Boy, and that's our show. The seminar is a co-production of the CCA at Rutgers University and the Sounding Out blog. Episodes are produced, edited, and mixed by me, Nicholas Glastonbury. Our theme music is by Aldous Ignight. All the music in this episode is by No No Boy, whose new album, Empire Electric, is out now. You can find it wherever you listen to music. Special thanks to Colin Yeager, Maurice Wallace, Andrew Parker, and Derek Barron. And thanks once again to Julian Saporiti, No No Boy himself. Find us on the web at seminarpod.org. The Sounding Out blog is at soundstudiesblog.com, and the CCA is at cca.rutgers.edu. Thanks for listening to the seminar. Till next time. 
Japanese side, 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 side. 